The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. We've been, as most of you know, reading this wonderful book by Ajahn Chah, Food for the Heart. Some of his, I think, mostly monastic disciples have translated a number of the talks from Thai into English in a really accessible way. We've been working our way through this book. We're now on page or chapter 15, reading The Natural Mind, it's called. It's, uh, I think, a wonderful chapter and a really important chapter, teaching us one of the most important things, because without this teaching, I think it's guaranteed that anybody who takes up this practice will give it up. But we need this teaching. It's the only thing that keeps us doing the practice. And the point Ajahn Chah makes right at the beginning of this chapter is that uh, no matter who we are, including the Buddha, on down, no matter who we are, we always begin our practice, or you could say more generally our spiritual pursuits, with greed and aversion, with the ego. That's what we take into our practice. So it isn't, shouldn't be at least a surprise to us how frustrating our practice, our spiritual practice, appears to us at times. Right? Because if we're motivated by greed, like I'm sitting here meditating, but I'm trying to get something, or if I'm sitting here meditating trying to get rid of stuff, those two attitudes, the attitude of greed, the attitude of aversion, they're stressful. And they set in motion stress. So it isn't a surprise when we bring, you know, our habit energy to our sitting meditation practice or just generally to our intention to be a better person, to be a spiritual person, to wake up, that we get frustrated. And normally, like I said, if we don't get this instruction, when we're frustrated or frustrated enough, we give up. Either we blame the system, you know, the teachings of the Buddha or the particular teacher or the particular instructions we've gotten and think it's not working, or we blame ourselves. I just can't do this practice. I know other people are getting benefits from this, but it's not for me. I can't do this. And you just think about how many times this has happened to each of us. How many times have we felt like bolting from the meditation hall because it was so frustrating. The pain in the body was just too much. The restlessness in the mind, the boredom, the sleepiness, or whatever it was. I'm done. This is over. This is stupid. We just want to bolt. We just want to give up. And a lot of us have. There's, if we had enough time, you know, to interview everybody in the room, we'd see so many times where people gave it up for a while. You know, and then one way or another they find their way back to their meditation practice, the mindfulness practice. So the instruction we need to hear from our teachers over and over again is, don't give up. <laughs> and maybe a little bit more elaborate, don't be surprised when your spiritual pursuits turn out to be frustrating. Not that they're going to be frustrating all the time, hopefully, but there will be times that they're frustrating. Because the whole path, the whole wholesome path of awakening, waking up, becoming more clear, is we're waking up to what in the mind, the patterns in the mind that aren't working, that are stressful. And that is stressful. Like the Buddha said once, there's two kinds of suffering. There's the suffering that leads to the freedom of a Buddha, and there's the suffering that leads to more suffering. So the awakening practice doesn't mean you don't suffer. It just means that the mind is relating to the suffering, to the stress, to the frustration, in a way that's purifying, that's liberating. As opposed to what we normally do, we relate to our frustrations and our upsets, or different entanglements in a way that lead to more entanglements and more frustration and more upset over and over and over again. This is that cycling of samsara, the repetition of cycles of suffering 
because we relate to suffering in precisely the way that sets in motion more stress, more ignorance in the mind. As the Buddha once said, long enough to want to seek another way. He said once something like, we've been doing this long enough. We've shed so many tears that our tears would have filled the four great oceans. That's how long we've been relating to suffering, relating to stress and frustration in ways that lead to more stress and frustration. Long enough to be willing to try another way. And this other way is precisely what I've been saying, which is we stick with the practice, and when it's frustrating, because we've been instructed now, we're not surprised by the frustration. We're not surprised by how much we don't want to sit tomorrow morning or the next day. How many good ideas we have for why we shouldn't have to sit. Or while we're sitting, not really sitting. It's just so easy to think of other things that are more important all the time. So we're not surprised by that blowback, by that resistance. Of course the mind's resistance. Of course there's frustration. Of course there appears to be a million things that are more important to do. Of course I feel like I can't do this practice. I just was born too restless. I was born too sleepy. I started too late in life. I don't know what I'm doing. I've never gotten good instructions. You know, there are so many good reasons not to continue. But I'm not surprised by all of that. I'm not surprised by how rational it seems to stop. We just stick with it. Because it's exactly not believing the frustration, not taking it personally, that is this purification. One way or another, we're going to bump up against frustration in life. There's just no way to be a human being without bumping up against frustrating experiences, difficult experiences, of course, also beautiful experiences, which are frustrating in their own particular way, like that we can't make it last, makes a beautiful experience frustrating. Or that we want it to be even more beautiful than it is. We have all kinds of ways to turn a beautiful experience into a frustrating experience. So life is going to be frustrating no matter what. The question is, how does our mind relate when our sit, meditation practice becomes frustrating, or generally our life, the experience, is frustrating? What does the mind do? Normally the mind, our minds assume that we've made a mistake or somebody has made a mistake and they're causing us trouble. And the thing to do is want to get rid of it or want to get someplace better than this. And that kind of wanting always leads to more stress. The practice way, mindfulness practice way, is to be interested in the frustration. Oh, it's frustrating now. Sitting is difficult now. What is it if that's difficult? Well, can this be okay? Now, what is it? Oh, is it the pain in the knee? Is it the not liking the pain in the knee? Is it the thinking that the pain will never go away? Whatever it is, whatever seems predominant or the problem, within we do just the opposite. Instead of wanting to get someplace that doesn't have this problem or wanting to rip the problem apart and destroy it, we practice getting interested in the problem. We get interested in the frustration. Whenever there's frustration, whenever there's difficulty, we see it as a teacher. Because it's teaching us not to do what we always do with frustration. We always want to resist. Even though it's never worked, somehow this is, this is the height of delusion. We all have it. Somehow we think this time our resistance is going to lead to some positive result. This time, my craving wanting things to be other, is actually going to cause things to change in the way that I want them to change. But wanting something doesn't make it happen. Wanting something intensely isn't the cause for that to arise. Good things do arise sometimes, but they never arise, good things never arise because we 
grasp them. We really want them. We think we should have that. That's not why it arises. You know, I don't care how intensely you want to win the lottery. My understanding, my direct experience shows that it never increases your odds. <laughs> I haven't actually experienced, experienced, experimented that much with the lottery, but I have experienced, experimented with intense wanting, as we all have, right? And it doesn't actually do anything but cause the mind and body to get really tight. A lot of stress, a lot of suffering. So we have to learn this lesson that that doesn't work. Hatred just makes the mind and body tight. It doesn't, hatred doesn't actually cause things to be different, cause the things that are irritating us to be gone. If anything, hating creates more difficult experience for us, more stress. So, no matter how long it takes, we have to stay right in the middle of our life, because it's only right in the middle of our life, which is why we sit, you know. Sitting meditation practice is the practice of being right in the middle of our experience. And it's only in being right in the middle of our experience where we can change this habit, this have a different relationship to what's frustrating, to what's difficult. And it's really helpful, I find it really helpful, and in this chapter, Achachar reminds us of this, you know, whoever you bring to mind, you know, the Buddha or any particular saintly, holy, beautiful person, wise person you might want to bring to mind, they've had to do exactly what we have to do. Nobody has been able to move in the direction of freedom, becoming a wiser, more loving, more free human being without doing this work. There's no other way. We have to, as this American Zen teacher says, we have to sit right in the downtown of suffering, which just so happens to be right here, our own experience. This is the only place. It's not like we have to go somewhere, because whatever is out there, it's being acted out or modeled right here in this mind and body. So whatever needs resolution needs resolution right here. It will show up right here in the moment's experience. This is where we figure out how to be a wise, loving, and liberated human being. Any moment will do, actually. In fact, only this moment will do. No other moment will do. This is the only moment, this heart, this mind, this body is the only place to do this work. And this is part of the ignorance is with aversion and craving is we think there's a better place to do the work that leads to happiness. We keep rejecting this moment, thinking this isn't the place, this isn't right. I'm too uncomfortable, I'm too sleepy, I have too much doubt. But this is exactly the place to experiment. Well, it's like this. This is how it is. Because what we're really, like the liberation, the freedom we're interested in is the freedom that's unconditional. That doesn't depend on any particular conditions. So that means it's available here and now. And so understanding the practice that way, it, it over time at least, it generates this huge respect for the present moment. So whenever you sit down or whenever the practice comes to mind as you're living your life out in the world, doing your business, being with your family, going to the store, whenever the thought of practice comes to mind, there will be that deep respect. Well, this is the place to practice. This is perfect. If this heart has this capacity to be alive and free and loving, and wise, then it should be able to manifest in this moment, shouldn't it? So let's see. And even if we see the opposite, we see ignorance arising and frustration arising, well then it, that's so interesting that, well, what's in the way of the freedom? So we get interested 
in the frustration. Because we have confidence, we have whatever that confidence is, we have confidence it doesn't have to be this way. When we're frustrated, when we're irritable, when we're impatient, when we're needy. It's like the sense of you see that frustration, that neediness, that impatience, whatever the attitude, the afflictive emotional state is, you see it, but there's a sense that there's something beyond it. But wanting to get rid of it isn't the way to see what's also here and now. It's like getting close to it, relaxing with it, not taking it so personally. It's just stuff. It's just frustration. Let me read a little from this chapter, some of Ajahn Chah's words. So again, this is chapter 15, reading the natural mind. He says, everybody, including the Buddha, started out like this, with the desire to practice, wanting to have peace of mind, wanting to not have confusion and suffering. These two kinds of desires have exactly the same value. If not understood, then both wanting to be free from confusion, not wanting to have suffering or defilements. It's a little shocking. He says they are a foolish way to practice. But we have to start there. You know, isn't that, that describes our situation most of us, most of the time. We do want to be free. We do want to get rid of these bad habits. So we're taking, like, the problems that we experience in life, we're taking them very personally, and we decide to go practice meditation in order to fix it. And so we start from that place, and it's because we start with that attitude that our practice tends to be frustrating, if not all the time, a lot of the time. Because we're using greed and aversion to get something that's free of greed and aversion. But greed, because greed and aversion are always stressful states. But in doing that, there's a possibility we'll recognize the problem. You know, that greed and aversion isn't the way. So that frustration really becomes one of our most important teachers. You know, like, how is it that despite my wholesome intention to be free, I end up not free. What is it? See, we see, and then we look a little, instead of being superficial, we look a little bit more carefully. This is Ajahn Chah a little later. He says, Perhaps we may not realize that the Buddha and all his disciples had this kind of wanting. The Buddha, however, reached an understanding of wanting and non-wanting, not wanting. He understood that they are simply the activity of mind, that such things merely appear in a flash and then disappear. These kinds of desires are going on all the time. When there is wisdom, we don't identify with them. We are free from clinging. Whether it's wanting or not wanting, we simply see it as such as merely the activity of the natural mind. When we take a close look, we see clearly that this is how it is. So, here we're learning, you know, that the Buddha, otherwise people, when they got interested in the frustration, the wanting, the not wanting, they didn't assume it was a personal problem. So, we have to change our relationship. Instead of wanting to get rid of this, we have to change our relationship. And this is the tendency we go back and forth where in one moment there's that wave of craving or whatever, you know, to fix our life, aversion or craving. And we, in a sense, we get on that high horse and we're really going to get rid of this thing that that's irritating us or really get to that place where we think it's going to be paradise. And we get frustrated because it never is lasting. Whatever we do set in motion, it's never set. It's never permanent. We always have the next battle to fight. So when uh, each time that comes up, 
we can begin to see, well, maybe, maybe I don't have to get on the high horse. So, when we get on the high horse and we're frustrated, we tend to swing just the opposite way and think, there's nothing I can do. It's sort of giving up. That's equally frustrating. So, instead of going, getting on the high horse and thinking we can get ourselves to happiness, or giving up and thinking there's no way to happiness. We have to see that the problem is we're misunderstanding the ache that we experience in our life. The ache of frustration, the ache of impatience, the ache of neediness, the ache of wanting, the ache of not wanting. There's clearly an ache, you know, whatever you want to call it, an existential itch, an uneasiness, a pain, But there's this ouch that we feel. And it's our misunderstanding of that that leads us into the two ways that never lead to good results. Getting on the high horse, thinking we're going to fix our life, which ends up being frustrating, because whatever we get from that effort always ends up being impermanent, whatever it is. Or giving up, thinking there's nothing to do in life, no way to make life work. So giving up could be sleeping a lot, drinking a lot, watching a lot of media, reading a lot of unnecessary stuff, talking a lot, committing suicide. One way or another, sort of retreating, disconnecting, getting absorbed in things that don't really matter. And that doesn't work. Because whatever we do, wherever we go, we take the mind and its habits with us. There's no escaping our mind and its habits. So the Buddha is suggesting, and Ajahn Chah here is, you know, talking about the Buddha's instructions in his own words, from his own experience, saying again, the Buddha, however, reached an understanding of wanting and not wanting. He understood that they are simply the activity of mind, that such things merely appear in a flash and then disappear. These kinds of desires are going on all the time. When there is wisdom, we don't identify with them. We are free from clinging. It's not saying the Buddha got rid of the wanting and the not wanting. He transformed his understanding of wanting and not wanting. And this is our practice. Our practice isn't about fixing life. Our practice is transforming our understanding of the mind, of of life, of the way it is. That's what gets transformed. So, there's still going to be the momentum of our habit energies, our personality habit energies. But now what begins to change is what the mind, how the mind understands those patterns that come and go. So, you know, now it's different. Back 30 years ago before I started my practice, Somebody would do something and maybe trigger my defensive pattern. But that that defensiveness felt very personal. Whatever it was, it felt like a, you know, a real threat that needed a real response, a hard response, solid response. Whether it was retreating or acting out in some other way. Now, just because of who knows how long defensiveness have been, has been set in motion in terms of my conditioning. So, for whatever reason, it still has momentum. That particular habit of being defensive, worried about what people think about me, being competitive in different ways, they still get, those patterns still get triggered, but now when they get triggered, there's much more wisdom present most of the time, <coughs> excuse me, that recognizes that that's just what it is. <coughs> that defensiveness is just that feeling that has arisen in the mind or heart. Oh. It's just what it is instead of the old way, which is that's me. I mean, we don't, we're not even conscious that we're saying, oh, that's me. We just identify with it immediately and then act on it immediately as if it, that's who we are. And this is the difference between being blind, like a robot, and being a wise human being. A wise human being is awake, is mindful, 
So when things happen and emotions get triggered, when the practice is strong, then there is a simple, clear understanding. Oh, this is an emotion being known. As opposed to thinking, I'm angry. Or I need that to be happy. Or I don't care. You see, well, that's just a thought. That feeling and that thought, I don't care, that's just that experience that was known that moment, in that moment. It's just that. I can't describe how much freedom there is in that moment of that simple recognition. When I say it in terms of words, it doesn't seem much, but those of you who've had this experience know what a difference that is for the mind to simply recognize, oh, that's just that. It's literally night or day between being that and seeing that. There's a big difference between being the angry one and knowing there's anger in the mind, and it's like this. Can this be okay? It's just this yucky feeling. So you see why it's so important to just engage the practice, because what it's going to deliver, either we're already totally free, and then practice is just what the mind does. Being awake, not being confused by what's arising, is just what the enlightened mind does. Or we're not enlightened, and then things are arising, and to some degree, because we're not enlightened, we're confused by what's arising. So defensiveness gets triggered, and there's some wisdom that understands it's just defensiveness being known, and there's some habit of mind that thinks, no, I'm defensive. This shouldn't be happening. Why doesn't this person respect me? You know, what can I do to win them back, to think highly of me? What can I say or how can I act? What's wrong with them? So there's a a battle, in a sense, between the momentum of wisdom that understands it's just this being known and identification, the habits of attachment and identification where we're the tendency to get lost in the different emotional patterns. And this is a difficult place to be because from a practice point of view, we'd really like to be done, you know, like not afflicted by our emotional patterns. But we need them to show where uh, the mind is still caught, still identified. We need to see identification in order to see that it doesn't work. The releasing, the mind's letting go of its habit of attachment and identification has a cause. The cause is seeing the attachment, seeing the inefficiency, the dysfunction of attachment is the cause for letting go. Or another way of saying that is seeing that attachment and identification hurt causes the mind to let go. If we don't know attachment hurts, we continue being attached. That's called ordinary ignorance. All day long, most of us, most of the time, we're attached to this or that, identified with different experiences, and we're so caught up in our experiencing and our reactivity that we don't realize how much it hurts to be so identified. I see this all the time because I've been practicing for a while now. I'll be around people. Often people I love, it stands out most because, you know, people we know well and we love deeply, there's a certain sensitivity we have, which is like really get them. And uh, one of the things we see with our close friends, our partners, our family members, is we see them when they're attached or they're identified to their views, to their opinions about this, to their desires, to their fears, Right? Ever see anybody you love really attached or identified to things? And if you're in a balanced place, what you will see is suffering. And it will be very difficult for you to be present. Just in the same way it's difficult for you to be present with your own suffering, it's difficult for us to be present with other people's suffering. It's really difficult. But that's exactly what we need because it's a teacher. It's helpful for them. Because what are we doing right then? We're modeling exactly what they need to be doing. They need to be aware that attachment doesn't work. And so that's what we're seeing in that moment. We're not judging them. We're just seeing the truth. Attachment, identification is stressful. 
And we don't have to say a thing. I mean, now in most cases, it's not appropriate to say. A few cases, you know, where the person is clearly inviting feedback, maybe it's appropriate to say something, but usually not. But even if we're not saying anything, it doesn't mean it's not helpful. And it's definitely helpful for ourselves to be in that place where we recognize that attachment doesn't help. Attachment is suffering. In Buddhism, attachment is the only evil thing, the only bad thing. The ignorance that leads to attachment, identification, is the one problem. And the way you correct that is by the cultivating the mind that can see clearly that attachment is dysfunctional. Clinging, grasping, identifying is dysfunctional. And we see it in ourselves and we see it in others. And then we practice seeing it all day long. And the difference in the formal meditation time is we're seeing it more deeply because there are just fewer distractions. So the mind can get more subtle. So we're seeing how attachment operates in more subtle levels. I mean, you can be in a very peaceful, calm state in your meditation, and you can see if the mind is still interested, which is really the the main ingredient for this insight, is interest. Interest in the truth of things. So if, if you're really in a calm, peaceful place, and the mind is interested in that experience, then you'll notice the subtle attachment to the calm, as if it belongs to me. And there's a subtle holding, like, oh, this is so nice. I really don't want this sit to end. And if you're seeing it clearly with wisdom, you'll see this is suffering. The calm isn't suffering, the calm is beautiful. But the attachment to the calm is suffering and unnecessary and only gets in the way. It's the same thing with a more common experience, like having pain. So it's near the end of your sit, you've been sitting for 40 minutes, you've got 5 minutes left, your knee hurts or your back hurts, you're restless, and you're sitting because you've been trained to stay put, you know, and there you are sitting, and you're practicing, you know, you've, you've learned the instructions well, you're relaxing with the pain, you're not getting identified with the pain, it's just pain, it's just pain. But because the mind is really interested, you detect just very subtle layers of aversion, like, just got to get through four more minutes, three minutes and 55 seconds, but it's okay. Or just that sort of waiting. Even even this notion, I'm waiting for the end of the, uh, the, end of the set, even that is stressful because it's, it's really hatred. I mean, we wouldn't call it hatred. We call it impatience or boredom or something. But... It's just that same movement of, as hatred. It is tension. It's stressful. It's only a, a open-hearted welcoming of the pain. That, and so when we get that instruction, we'll welcome the pain. It's not like we actually like pain, but if we practice welcoming the pain, we'll see the subtle aversion. Like there's fear that if we open the pain, it will never go away. Or if you think you're really calm, just, you know, imagine sitting for an extra 15 minutes and notice what your mind does. And then you'll see, oh, the mind was counting on the sit ending. I didn't realize I was looking forward to the end, which is stressful. But when I said to myself, you know, as a practice move, okay, honey, let's sit for an extra 15 minutes or 30 minutes. And then you see, you know, in living color, the resistance you realize, oh, oh, this is not liking. This is tension. This is suffering. Because sometimes we won't be able to make something end. Like, you know, with a sit, we can just get up. But sometimes, like when you get cancer, it's not like there's a off button somewhere where you can say, you know, I think I'm done with this whole thing. I want to go back. Or, you know, or any, being in a difficult relationship with somebody or having a job that's challenging, but there are no other options, you know. There's only one way, which is to continue showing up. Generally, having a life is like that, right? It's difficult having a life, but we just have to keep showing up. There's no, like, I want out. And that's kind of what we want. That's that opposite movement than craving. It's like, I want out. That's why we watch stupid television and 
read stupid books and have stupid conversations because basically we want out and we're looking for something to sort of fill up our space so we don't have to be connected to what it's like to be a human being. We want to be disconnected. So we overeat or we overconsume this or that as a way of checking out. So I'm so grateful for these teachings of Ajahn Chah, and I'll just uh, leave it with this last uh, point about interest and never giving up. And I'll read this poem by the Dalai Lama, and then we'll have about 15 minutes to hear from other people in the group. It's a wonderful little poem that evidently the Dalai Lama wrote. Never give up. No matter what is going on, never give up. Develop the heart. Too much energy in your country, I think he's talking about us, is spent developing the mind instead of the heart. Be compassionate, not just to your friends, but to everyone. Be compassionate. Work for peace in your heart and in the world. Work for peace. And again, I, and I say again, never give up. No matter what is going on around you, never give up. So your own experiences or questions with this practice, falling into wanting or not wanting, what comes to mind? Yeah, and say your names, please. I'm Jean. Thanks, Mark. That was a great talk. So I did exactly what I needed mean personally. Um, I was here a few weeks ago when uh, there was a substitute um, lecturer, and she was talking about faith, and I remember about halfway through going, I have no idea what she's talking about, but I just kept sitting and thinking, there's got to be something here, and I left having no idea. She's talking about faith in Buddhism. The next morning, I woke up with four just wretched situations in my work, my personal life, my kids, and I thought, I thought, what was that faith thing? And I looked up on <laughs> Wikipedia, faith in Buddhism, and I was like, I can understand this, I know I can. And all four of I said, okay, I'm just going to have faith, and all four of those situations were resolved by the time I went to bed that night. And so last night I was med- meditating, and I was trying to let go of attachment, and I thought, why am I doing this? What is this? It feels kind of gray and empty to let go of attachment, because it feels so enlivening to be attached to something. And so, mm-hmm. as I was meditating, I thought, I don't want to let go of this. And then I just kind of went back to the faith and saying, I know this is good for me. I know I'm going to be glad I did this, but I'm not really sure why. And so, your lecture tonight really helped. And if you have any more to add on that, it's scary to enter that kind of area. It's beautiful grace, but we don't live in a world of grace. We live in a world of technicolor. So, yeah. thank you. Yeah, yeah. And it's really true what you say. We don't emphasize it enough in the West. In Asia, where Buddhism has been around for a while, they emphasize a lot the uh, experience of the Buddha or the enlightened ancestors, the women and men from the time of the Buddha on down, who were like us, neurotic human beings, who realized real freedom and were able to live in a way that was skillful, wise, and loving because of their awakening, because of their wisdom. It's emphasized a lot because initially we need those role models, however mythical they might be, you know, or friends who are further along in their practice than you, or teachers. We need role models because it's counterintuitive for us, like you said, well, Jean, the attachments are technicolor. And initially, not attachment feels like gray. But that's just initially because we've been feeding on attachment. That's been our life energy. Aversion and greed is what makes us feel alive. And we start to wean ourselves from aversion, from feeding on aversion and greed. We feel kind of empty because we're not used to not, not being fed by aversion and greed. And it takes some time before we discover a more subtle aliveness. People who have been doing this practice, we become more alive the more we do this practice. But there is a real leap initially until we start having our own experiences in the practice. And that's where faith comes in. Initially, it's just faith that, not that we believe that Buddha had in his enlightenment, but we're inspired by that idea, we listen to what he says, we go... That makes a lot of sense. And that's kind of what I heard you saying, too. You know, as you kind of worked with it, somewhere in your gut, you kind of know it makes a lot of sense. I, I don't, it doesn't, 
I'm not, my experience isn't aligning up yet, that it makes sense, so I'm going to stick with it. And this is especially true for us Westerners who rely a lot on sort of rational thinking to hear the teachings and understand them intellectually because that can be the ground for faith. In Asia, because kids get the imprint of the Buddha as this sort of mythical, powerful, wonderful, you know, like God-like figure, then they they have this sort of childlike trust in the teachings because it was imprinted in their culture. Well, of course, we don't have that here. But that's okay. There's there's disadvantages to having that more, um, I'm not sure what you call it, devotional energy. Here, what's going to get us inspired mostly is it makes a lot of sense. Being mindful makes a lot of sense. And so doing what Gene did, you know, where you think about it and you go get more information and you reflect on it and then you sort of use that to help work with your own experience, that's how we develop faith, is we see it makes sense and then we apply it and then we see it works to some degree. And then we do it a little bit more and we say it works now even a little bit more. And if this works and that works, maybe this other stuff that hasn't arisen in my own practice, maybe that also works. You know, I'm motivated, so I have to check it out. Thanks for bringing that up. Other thoughts come to mind? Yeah. Sarah? Sarah? Yes. Nice to meet you. Um, Of having compassion? Well, no, not of having compassion, but of having, needing to have a reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so what happened? Yeah, that's a deep insight. As it gets generalized more and more, that's all we need to learn. We need to keep learning that same insight, which is every like just uh, if you didn't hear Sarah, that everything needs to move. So she was there with her pain. Initially, the mind, because that's the habit of our minds, wants some meaning. Like why is there pain? But a lot of the time, answering the question why isn't helpful. What we do know directly in our experience is that there is this pain. And as we trust awareness, mindfulness, then we see that pain's nature is to move. That's what pain does. Everything moves. Thoughts move, sounds move, sights move. Everything is alive with movement. And uh, Sarah used the word allowing it. That's a nice word to use. You can even bring that to mind. You know, can the heart, can the mind allow this to be, allow this to move, allow this to do what it needs to do. It may not go away, in in Sarah's case, the pain went away, because the pain probably was mostly the fear of the pain, the resistance to the pain. And once that you, once the view you had of the pain got transformed, then there was no resistance and no friction And that pain, whatever it was, wasn't what it used to be. But sometimes, even when we're not resisting, the body can still have pain. But still, it's better to not resist. So sometimes pain goes away, sometimes it doesn't. Like, for example, let's talk about emotional pain. If if you've had a a terrible loss in your life, and, uh, and sometimes when we're feeling that strong pain of loss, we resist it. We're in denial. You know, you know about the stages of grief. Well, one of them is denial. Like we just, 
can't accept that this person has died or that this person is sick. And then it really hurts. But even when we open to it, the pain of loss, and that the energy of that sadness is really moving, flowing, not being resisted, it still really hurts, but it feels really good to let it move. It seems paradoxical that it could feel really good to let it move and that what's moving really hurts. But that's the experience. And I bet there are people in the room who have had this experience of grief, maybe not for long periods, but in moments where you really let it move and it feels so good for it to be moving even though you're really sad or you really feel the pain of loss. So it's a metaphor for all of life, letting things move. Whatever it is, letting it move. Let nature be nature. Other thoughts? We have a couple minutes left. Yeah. Christina, so I uh, am going along with the letting things move. I have a particular person that I feel very attached to that's a very painful attachment. And if it's an actual, like, living, breathing person, is there a way to healthily let that attachment break and, like, visualize that attachment moving? Because it's like a living, breathing entity who has their own mind and doing all the things that they do. And as much as I know how unhealthy the attachment is, it's, it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. And I don't really know what to do with it. Right. Well, remember the attachment is pain. <coughs> attachment equals suffering. So, that really helps. So then, you want to forget the story, like the idea of that person, the image of that person, because you know directly the experience. If there is attachment, then it's here and now as pain. So when that's true for you, in, an, in a moment where that's true, where you're actually aware of the pain of that attachment, then get interested in that, that pain, that ouch, that constriction, whatever it is. And then being mindful of it, you'll see, you'll experience it as something that wants to move. That it's precisely uh, the instinct, the conditioned habit is to not let it move. It feels threatening to let it move, like it's going to kill, kill us, or kill you. But you have to learn to trust it. This is where faith comes in again. We have to let, have faith that it's okay to let things be what they are. At first, maybe in just little moments, you know, that over time... We really trust that it can move. And it may not be about that person at all. It may be that the attachment to this person is really masking uh, an inner feeling of insecurity or of, of being groundless. Like the latching onto a person is a way of making me feel real. So, But it doesn't matter because what it really is is there's this that needs to move. And you can go right to that. So don't worry so much about, like, why am I so attached to that person, the level of the story. But in terms of Dharma practice that we do here, I mean, you can think about that. It's not that it's wrong to think about, like, why am I so attached to this person and how might I relate more skillfully to this person. But that's a more therapeutic level. It's really useful to be reflective in that way. But it's even more important to, this, to do this other practice, because we'll never do this other practice unless we just make it this practice, which is really going to the direct experience of the ouch of that attachment. So from the story to what what it feels like, the impact in the heart. Oh, it's heavy, it hurts. It's, well, can this be okay? You know, and to, like, uh, and to be interested in it, to be intimate with it, instead of like wanting to manage it. Like, I'm going to open to you so that you'll go away. I'm going to open to you because this is how it is now. And I trust this. I have confidence or faith that opening is always skillful. I don't have complete faith yet, but I'm exploring this faith. I'm developing it by acting on it and seeing the results that I get from it. Yeah, thanks, Christina, for bringing that up. And let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words and have time for a deep breath together. And we can appreciate the lineage of wisdom from the women and men 
generation by generation. We have busy lives like we do, troubles and difficulties just as we do, but somehow found the motivation to be reflective, to develop mindfulness, to realize some deep wisdom and freedom and compassion and share their practice with others generation by generation and then we get to be the fortunate recipients and we can be grateful for these teachings, for this community, for this place to practice and inspire to become wholehearted in our practice, to be a cause for peace, cause for happiness and freedom in our life and in the world. So may this be so. And thanks again, everyone. Welcome back to Jerry, one of our program hosts, who was just in Africa for a couple of weeks. We've got a couple of programs coming up. Um, this Friday is our monthly loving-kindness practice group, 7 to 8.30. We always have a mindfulness and 12-step group on Friday evenings as well. I'll be leading a half-day retreat on Saturday in the afternoon, 1 to 5, so plenty of spots. The following Saturday, I'm doing a day-long workshop on living the practice, relating wisely to money, livelihood, and status. And I'm hoping some wise people who know something about that show up (laughs) so we can share together about this place where there's a lot of suffering around money and status and right livelihood. So these workshops, these Living the Practice workshops, involve some small group interactions and large group interactions and some a few guided sets, but it's really a chance to get some, you know, some people in the community as we reflect on different issues. And so Bright Livelihood and Money is the one coming up for this quarter. So that's Saturday the 9th, 9.30 to 4. Um, Craig Vollmer is scheduled to be teaching a, a patience workshop on Sunday, but He's having some medical problems, so we've postponed that. That's going to be April 20th. So the way it is in the newsletter is wrong. Um, it's been changed. And we're looking for more program hosts for Wednesday night. If you've been around for a year or more and familiar with what goes on at the center and would like to help host one of the Wednesdays each month, so it's a monthly commitment, uh, one, one evening a month commitment on Wednesday night, you can see me or let Jerry know on your way out. Any other announcements people have? Thanks, everyone. Have a good week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.